Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And welcome back to The Prospect Interview, the podcast where we meet some of the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, art and society. I'm Samir Rahim. Today we're talking to longtime Saudi watcher and expert on the country, Madawi al-Rashid, about what's really happening in Saudi Arabia and its supposed radical programme of reform. When he rose to power in 2017, the young crown prince Mohammed bin Salman was fated across the Western world as a long-awaited liberaliser, hobnobbing with Hollywood celebrities and world leaders, as well as making a highly publicised visit to the UK. But in recent years, we have seen the targeting of dissidents, often with violence, and has this revealed the empty promises behind the facade? Madawi, thank you so much for joining us on the Prospect interview. Thank you. Um, Saudi Arabia's been a country mired in cliches for a long time. There's the oil, the sheikhs, the extremely conservative interpretation of Islam. But all that seemed to change in 2015 when King Abdullah died and King Salman came to the throne, particularly reference to his son, Mohammed bin Salman, who became the power behind the throne. Has there been as much of a sea change as is often claimed in Saudi Arabia? Um, there is continuity um, as the oil and the sheikhs are still there, but there has been a lot of changes, especially at the social and economic levels. Uh, the political system remains rigid um, and there was no sign of opening it up to any kind of political participation, uh, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of organization. Those kind of issues remain very, very difficult. And in fact, uh, restrictions have increased uh, since uh, 2015 when uh, King Salman came to power. Uh, the problem started actually in 2011 with the Arab uprisings during the time of King Abdullah as this uprising drew attention um, to the way they um, gathered crowds asking for uh, what appeared to be simple demands uh, like dignity, uh, equality, and freedom. Um, and as the tide reached Saudi Arabia, there has been a, a lot of discussion about how to deal with this uh, without um, opening up the political system. 
And uh, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who became Crown Prince in 2017, was chosen as a model to uh, contain the tide of uprisings and the possibility of these uprisings reaching Saudi Arabia. So as a young uh, uh, royal uh, who promises to liberalize the social sphere, uh, allow women to drive, allow uh, also women to participate in sports, opening up the employment sector for women, that has become the model to contain the Arab uprising and the possibility of them reaching Saudi Arabia. However, as a result of this so-called reform, um, there is a growing dissent in society. Uh, dissent not specifically against women driving or against the diversification of the economy, but against the fact that most of these re reforms came from the top with no consultation whatsoever with any kind of um, important elite groups or uh, pressure groups. And uh, as a result, Mohammed bin Salman had to resort to one method, and that is repression, um, in order to uh, create this new hype about a modern and reformed Saudi Arabia. So Mohammed bin Salman, he seems to, uh, to be in a favorite with a lot of Western journalists from the early days. There was quite a, was quite a good PR campaign that seemed to be going on, wasn't there? Yes, absolutely. Mohammed bin Salman had to resort to uh, PR companies, had to use the media, the traditional media and social media, in order to mark a change or a break from the past. And uh, he was helped by consultants such as McKinsey um, and others. But this hype about Mohammed bin Salman, which allowed him to visit world capitals such as London, uh, Washington, um, uh, almost sort of uh, collapsed within months, um, if, if not weeks. However, many journalists, especially in the West, very distinguished journalists, fell into this trap of seeing Mohammed bin Salman as he wants the world to see him. And uh, eventually they adopted his narrative about the young and great reformer who's destined to become the king. And uh, in, in my book, I try to understand why many Western journalists with a long experience in working uh, in international uh, relations and also in foreign affairs. The, the uh, question was, for me is uh, these journalists almost entertained a wishful thinking and the wishful thinking is like this we expect Saudi Arabia to open up to have cinemas theater allow women to drive but we really don't want to press for any political change or political reform and this has meant that uh, many journalists saw the, the new um, repressive measures of Mohammed bin Salman as reform. And it was very difficult to shift this narrative until um, October 2018, when a Saudi journalist, Jamal Khashoggi, who had worked with the government for decades, was murdered at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul on the 2nd of October. 
And there was a shock in the world and among those journalists, because obviously Jamal Khashoggi was one of them. Um, and they could not uh, understand why uh, this reformer or the reformer they thought uh, they met in Riyadh would do such a thing. Uh, so there was a wake-up call that drew attention to the reality of life under Mohammed bin Salman. You were in contact with Jamal Khashoggi uh, shortly before his death, weren't you? Yes, actually, um, he was in, uh, in Istanbul and he sent me a text saying that he was coming to London and he would like to meet up with me. So I replied and said, yes, uh, let me know when you're gonna come. And this was on the 25th of September, uh, 2018. And then on Tuesday, the 2nd of uh, October, the whole world watched with horror uh, what had happened in, in the consulate. So um, yes, uh, Jamal Khashoggi is an interesting figure and I dedicate quite a lot of uh, pages to discuss uh, not only the, the murder, which has been covered in other uh, more detailed accounts, but the personality and why, why the Saudi regime would go as far as kill uh, a journalist who had been a loyal journalist um, in a foreign country. And in order to understand the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, I had to go into uh, what has changed in Saudi Arabia, um, what has remained constant. And um, I came to the conclusion after talking to so many exiles and uh, interviewing them uh, that uh, one fundamental thing has changed. Mohammed bin Salman uh, was ruling Saudi Arabia without the consensus of his own royal family. And he was fearful for his life, for his uh, future as king. And he had to curb the influence of many, many princes, marginalize them and even humiliate them and put them in a, a prison-like situation at, at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in the capital. So that fear from within the royal family sort of spread to the whole country. And he, was, he became intolerant of any kind of criticism or uh, dissidence. Um, many people have ended up in prison in Saudi Arabia simply uh, because they use social media to criticize um, government policies, decisions, such as Vision 2030, the, the, the sort of flagship of his new uh, rule. And um, if anybody decided to sort of scrutinize uh, the new policies, they were immediately detained, put in prison, and up to the uh, today, um, um, almost three years after uh, this wave of detention, um, people are still lingering in, in Saudi prisons and nothing has changed. So the, what, what explains the murder of Khashoggi is the uh, degree of repression, but also the fear that the crown prince lives in uh, as a result of failing to achieve and guarantee the, the consensus of the royal family over his political future. So in a way, is it a sign of, um, of his weakness to undertake such a sort of brutal attack against somebody who was previously, as you say in the book, quite close to the royal family? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, Jamal Khashoggi worked with the ex-Saudi intelligence uh, director, uh, Prince Turki Al-Faisal, for several years. In fact, he was uh, his spokesperson when Prince Turki was the ambassador in London around 2005. And he was the, the, the sort of liberal face of Saudi Arabia that the regime wanted to promote abroad. He had many contacts with Saudi uh, and, and foreign journalists. Um, he had access to princes. In fact, he also uh, was uh, destined to become the director of a new television channel uh, established by um, Prince Talal um, in Saudi Arabia. But that didn't happen as the uh, uh, news channel was shut down within hours of, of starting to broadcast. So he knew a lot. And that's what worried Hamad bin Salman, especially as Khashoggi went uh, to the United States and settled in Washington and started writing opinion columns in the Washington Post. So Jamal Khashoggi uh, comes out uh, of my research, not as this sort of freedom loving uh, journalist, uh, somebody who, is, who has called for democracy. He is an insider who defected and if one looks at his Arabic writings, which I have studied and researched for, for the book, um, I found that he was very apologetically arguing that Saudi Arabia doesn't need democracy, but he did argue that the rest of the Arab world needs democracy. So there is this tension or contradiction in his writing. He was very careful perhaps when he was living in Saudi Arabia, and that's understandable. He did not want to antagonize the Saudi regime further as he lost his job as editor of the one of the local newspapers and, and wasn't able to publish his uh, one of his books in Saudi Arabia. But when he went abroad as a sort of in self-exile, um, it wasn't clear to me uh, why he wouldn't go as far as calling for democracy in Saudi Arabia, although he was an advocate of democracy in other Arab countries. Even after that killing, though, the, uh, both the US and the UK haven't really cut off relations with Saudi Arabia, and they still continue uh, to sell arms, for example, to fund the, uh, the war in Yemen. There's a long history, isn't there, particularly between Britain and Saudi Arabia, which goes back to um, the founding of the country. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the foundation of Saudi Arabia, which I cover in the first chapter of the book, um, Britain was heavily involved in arming uh, one, one faction in the Arabian Peninsula against the others. They gave arms, they supported um, uh, the, the Al Saud rulers with uh, subsidies, um, and their, their influence started to sort of decline, but not disappear, as the US replaced Britain as the main protector of the throne and the oil fields. Um, however, when Khashoggi was murdered, it was probably unrealistic from the world to expect that Britain and the US uh, would uh, sanction Saudi Arabia or cut it off or suspend arms sales. That wasn't going to happen because we know that the foreign policy of both countries, Britain and the US, is not really driven by ideals. It is uh, driven by transactions and uh, uh, national interest. And in the 
eyes of uh, the Foreign Office in London or State Department in DC, the Saudis are there to be used and uh, to pay for services, for contracts, and especially military contracts at a time when in both countries there was a leadership uh, that didn't really bother too much about human rights or domestic issues in these countries. And the Saudis always threatened any country in the West uh, with a boycott or with sanctions should they criticize its domestic policies. And they regard it as a matter of sovereignty that no other country uh, could actually interfere in what uh, goes on on Saudi soil. So it wasn't realistic. But obviously, the, the murder was shocking, and there were some sanctions imposed on specific individuals in uh, Saudi Arabia, especially those whose names were associated with the murder, such as the ones who traveled to Istanbul. And those were denied entry to Britain, the US, and other countries. And um, that was seen as sufficient to uh, express some kind of anxiety over the behavior of the crown prince and his operatives. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You write very interestingly about the, the recent transformation from um, Saudi identity being primarily focused on Islam and pan-Islamism to a kind of Saudi-focused nationalism. Um, and this is very much part of Mohammed bin, bin Salman's project, isn't it? Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yes. Um, I think the uh, leadership in Saudi Arabia, as it is in other uh, parts of the world, initially from, I would say, the 1960s onward, they used Islam and weaponized Islam um, in ways to defeat their enemies. And the enemies in that period were defined as any kind of anti-imperialist, socialist, or even Arab nationalist. Um, and in order to defeat these forces that were agitating in the Middle East and elsewhere in the Muslim world, 
they, 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 the leadership thought that Islam was a good counter uh, uh, narrative to detract the youth from engaging with these so-called radical ideologies of uh, socialism, nationalism. So Islam was used as a weapon uh, uh, and Saudi Arabia had maintained uh, close contacts with a whole range of Islamists who helped Saudi Arabia to spread its Islamic influence and uh, uh, in enhance its legitimacy in the Arab world uh, and the Muslim world, but later among Muslims in Western countries. So Islam was used, and I, I refer to the pan-Islamic era of Saudi Arabia, which started since the rule of King Faisal from the 1960s onwards. Um, and, and this pan-Islamic identity was actually promoted in the country. So Saudis were, were asked to to believe that they are Muslims first, and they have a duty to support their brothers in other countries. And uh, you know, from music, poetry, uh, films, religious scholars, all, all of them preached, uh, including obviously the princes, the, the obligations to Islam. And it is an obligation to spread Islam and to defend Muslim causes. But that, uh, had, uh, that sort of approach um, had backfired. And with 9-11 um, and the attack on the Twin Towers in New York, Saudi Arabia was put under a lot of pressure to change directions. Um, and uh, also Saudi Arabia itself became site for terrorism um, between 2003 and 2008. And there was a gradual shift that Mohammed bin Salman tried to promote. So suddenly Saudis are uh, asked to uh, promote themselves as Saudi first. And uh, Mohammed bin Salman adopted some kind of populist nationalist slogans um, that had spread around the world and mainly in the US with the presidency of uh, Donald Trump. So Saudi Arabia first or Saudi Arabia for Saudis, Saudi Arabia is great or make Saudi Arabia great. These became the slogans and because they're short and uh, touch a, a real chord, um, they became hashtags on Twitter by Saudi operatives who work to promote the, the regime narrative. Um, so at the moment, I discovered in my research that this uh, hyper-nationalism is promoted. Um, and, and in a way, um, I, I try to look at the contradictions within the national narrative, because like all national narratives, they're, they're not clean and sort of tidy. They're a bit messy. They're based on uh, remembering and forgetting. And the Saudi one is, is also um, uh, the same. It has certain tensions. So if you look at the Vision 2030, which uh, aims to open the Saudi economy to the world, to global capital, um, and also encourage the migration of skilled labor to Saudi Arabia, all this is an, a liberal uh, project or in a way, a, a neoliberal project, which is also based on privatization of state assets. So th that's the vision. And then we come to this hyper-nationalism. And hyper-nationalism means that you close your borders, you promote your national interest, you keep your wealth inside the country. And th th these are the contradictions. 
at the same time, uh, there are social contradictions within this national narrative. If you look at the situation of women and gender equality. So Mohammed bin Salman wants to promote women and empower women by increasing their job opportunities, allowing them to drive, etc. But at the same time, uh, Saudi women uh, uh, cannot give her children uh, Saudi nationality if she marries a foreigner. So uh, th these are the contradictions that are uh, interesting to look at um, and expose in, in this sort of narrative of, of reform uh, and the, the crown prince as a great reformer. Is it a case though that even just by encouraging a few of these reforms, for example, women are now allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia, and as you said, they're in the, increasingly in the workforce, then that will inevitably start a sort of progress where women will um, more vocally call for their rights, perhaps in, in exile with people outside the country using social media, but even within the country as well. I mean, has, has he perhaps started a process that he, he won't know how to end? Uh, at the moment, the process has already started, and uh, the fact that uh, there are so many uh, feminist activists in prison attests to the fact that we do have a feminist movement uh, under, uh, that, that tries to work under really, really repressive uh, conditions, and many of them are actually uh, in prison. Uh, the ones who are in prison, such as Dujain al-Hudlul um, and, and others, um, they asked for these rights. They asked for the right to drive. They drove their cars and got arrested. And that started in 2011. And there's a history of women's activism or feminist activism in the country. But this is a new generation. The, 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 uh, the, this feminist movement proved to be a serious threat to the extent that young women like Lujain end up in prison for almost uh, uh, three years. Uh, it is because the feminist movement uh, surpassed um, and, and overcome the uh, divisions within Saudi society that uh, run along ideological lines, for example, between Islamists and liberals or regional lines. Um, you, as you know, there's a lot of diversity in the country and specific regions, such as the, the power region of the central province, the Shia region in the Eastern province, and the uh, Western region where Mecca and Medina are. So the, the, in that movement, in that feminist movement, we see that women got together and they were not going to stop uh, at the driving uh, battle. They had other agendas, and their main agenda is to mobilize society to ask for serious political change, uh, abolish the guardianship system, which is a bizarre system that forces women to seek permission for um, um, uh, marriage, um, um, custody over children, education, employment, etc. King Salman himself abolished some of these restrictions, but until the present day, a Saudi woman cannot marry without the permission of her guardian, and the guardian is usually a male relative, such as a father, brother, or even son, if she's divorced. So then, th th this is why in, in the book, I 
I um, have a chapter entitled Women and Rights, and I survey the voices, the Saudi women who had actually been very outspoken. And unfortunately, many of them ended up in prison. But at the same time, we find that some of them had taken, uh, they were so courageous to leave the country. And um, there is an interesting phenomena that emerged in recent years, and that is the runaway girls. Uh, Saudi Arabia is still a, a conservative society where uh, a woman is protected by family, but we find that in recent years, women, young girls uh, age 18 are uh, escaping uh, from the country, seeking asylum abroad. And this is uh, interesting. Um, uh, phenomena and upsetting for many Saudis. So in the book, I try to explain why uh, young women are leaving when the leadership is making it so easy for them to be women and live as women in the country with all these rights, uh, all these new gains, such as the right to drive or the right to work in many professions that had been closed to them. You yourself are from a Saudi background and uh, you're writing from exile um, in a way. Do you, do you, will you return to Saudi Arabia anytime soon? Is, is, it, is that something you wish for? I don't think I will return very soon in the near future, simply because the conditions that led to my to me leaving the country are still there. As a writer, academic, and also activist, um, I'm involved in uh, looking at Saudi history, politics, and society in ways that uh, are not appreciated by the regime. Simply, I expose uh, you know, propaganda and lies, and I have been active in calling for human rights, for equality, gender equality, um, not, uh, adopting a non-sectarian um, uh, outlook. And all these kind of positions make me persona non grata in Saudi Arabia. Um, and for my work, for my academic work, um, this book uh, has been a challenge. And uh, I, as I wasn't able to interview women inside Saudi Arabia, because I was worried about their security, um, I was worried that they will be pursued by the regime, uh, interrogated, and therefore um, the, the whole book is based on communication, interviewing, uh, and socializing with the, the people who had left. There are lots of books that talk about the Saudi youth, their aspirations, and these are based on uh, uh, research done in Saudi Arabia. But nobody has actually bothered to ask the question, why uh, so many Saudis have left the country and what is their social political profile? So my book in a way fills a gap in the literature on contemporary Saudi Arabia by looking at the lives of those who had left, why they have left and what their plans are. So I follow their uh, uh, regrouping um, uh, of the diaspora. It is, it is really like uh, interesting to see how Saudi Arabia is the destination of a lot of Asian, African, Western labor as a country that imports labor, but at the same time, it is beginning to produce a, a diaspora abroad. Um, and, and these are the interesting questions I tackle in the book. And I'm sure this book, in addition to my previous books, will, will not be appreciated 
by those in positions of power simply because it exposes the lie about this reform. And the title is actually telling because I talk about the uh, tension between the so-called reform of the new crown prince and the persistent repression. We've seen reports recently that Israeli officials may well have been meeting Saudi officials in Saudi Arabia itself, perhaps as a prelude to the normalization of relations. Do you think that that could possibly happen? Um, for a while now, um, the Saudi-Israeli relations are, are an open secret. Um, they, uh, the Saudi regime hasn't gone as far as the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain or Sudan in normalizing relations with Israel. And they has, the, 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 the king hesitates uh, to have uh, uh, official uh, normalization, but secret connections, sharing of intelligence and uh, military technology had already been happening and it is documented on both sides in Israel uh, itself. There are a lot of publications by respectable academics who had actually traced the, the connections. However, this, uh, the, the king now as Trump, uh, President Trump seems to be on his way out, of the uh, White House, he's, he's going to wait and see whether Biden would exert the same pressure on, on the king. I think it's all about a cost-benefit analysis. Uh, the, the king and Mohammed bin Salman will be foolish to rush into normalization when they can't, act, the, the losses are gonna be greater than the gain. So unless there is serious pressure from the US, I don't see that Mohammed bin Salman will inaugurate you know, a, a, an Israeli embassy in Riyadh. However, the secret talks uh, will continue and uh, these secret visits will also continue uh, on both sides. Madaw El-Rashid, thank you so much. Thank you. That's all from us. Thanks for joining us this week on the Prospect interview. If you enjoyed our podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. Goodbye, stay safe and see you next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.